Matthew chapter 2. And I promise I will preach long enough to where the hunger pains will be almost unbearable. That way you can eat more when we go across the road, right? Matthew chapter 2. With Christmas in full swing, today we are going to be looking at a message entitled The Man Who Tried to Stop Christmas. The Man Who Tried to Stop Christmas. Matthew chapter 2, we'll be starting in verse 1 here in a moment. So with Christmas season in full swing, I'm sure that many of you have already sat down with a bowl of popcorn and a cup of hot cocoa to enjoy a favorite Christmas movie. I know that I love Christmas movies, uh, but one thing that I've noticed recently as I have been watching is all the best Christmas movies, all my favorite Christmas movies have a villain. Have you noticed that? I'm not talking about the Hallmark Christmas movies. I don't know what category those are in. It's like the same movie every time. There's a boy and a girl, they fall in love. There's usually a dog involved somewhere. Uh, but classic Christmas movies always have a villain. For instance, in Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol, we meet the miserly old Ebenezer Scrooge. Dr. Seuss took a page out of Dickens' book and introduced us to his own version, the green-haired Grinch who steals Christmas from the citizens of Whoville. And you know, when you've seen that movie once, the theme song of the Grinch gets stuck in your head. And I love that one line about the Grinch, your soul is an appalling dump heap overflowing with the most disgraceful assortment of deplorable rubbish imaginable, mangled up in tangled up knots. Isn't that great? Maybe a, a Wonderful Life is one of your perennial favorites. You know George Bailey fights against the old mean Mr. Potter who threatens to buy up all of Bedford Falls and to put Bailey's loan and savings out of business. Then there's the Christmas story. You'll shoot your eye out, right? Uh, that's where Ralphie in the Christmas story hopes to get that BB gun on Christmas Day. But before he can get there, he has to fight the neighborhood bully, Scott Farkas. And if you were a 90s kid, you loved watching Kevin McAllister in Home Alone outwit those bandits, the wet bandits, Marv and Harry, with all of those fun booby traps. Don't you love Christmas movies? Well, you know, in our increasingly secular society, we have our own Scrooges and Grinches that come out this time of year, don't we? We see it in the retail space. Many of our retailers are telling the people that work in the stores, uh, don't say Merry Christmas, say Happy Holidays or whatever, because the name Christ is too offensive for our snowflake generation. We can't even stand the name Christ or Jesus. Every year we read about some small town somewhere in America who faces uh, the pressure from the PC police and the litigating lawyers who order the town to take down their nativity scene. In fact, a few years ago, I remember reading a, in a Texas school where an elementary principal confiscated one student's gift. The student had brought gifts for her classmates, and the 
principal caught wind of it and confiscated because they were pencils that said, Jesus is the reason for the season on them. Wow, you talk about a Grinch. So the Christmas curmudgeons, they take their cues from the original bad boy of Bethlehem. Most characters in our nativity drama behave like heroes, but when you come to Matthew 2, we are confronted with King Herod, one of the most wicked despots in all of the Scripture. But unlike the uh, Grinch or Scrooge, Herod was a real political figure of history who really did try and stop Christmas, and in doing so, he left a trail of blood in his wake. Now, you don't hear too many Christmas sermons about this villain of Christmas, Herod the Great, but in this message today, we're going to attempt to do that. And we're going to understand why the Gospel of Matthew Matthew seems to focus so much on his sordid story, on this villainous character. And in the process, I hope that we're going to learn some new truths about the meaning of Christmas and what God has to say to us through this timeless story. If you're taking notes today as we read through the first eight verses of Matthew, I want you to notice, uh, number one, a malevolent despot. A malevolent despot. So read with me in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born? King of the Jews, for we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what the time the star had appeared. And when he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. We see, number one, a malevolent despot. Now, as you read that text, the question that you first have to ask yourself is, who is the man Herod? So, let me give you a little bit of historical background that you don't get from the Scriptures. Herod was born into a wealthy and a politically connected family. In the year 37 B.C., he had risen to the attention of Rome as a man who could get things done And he didn't mind getting his hands dirty doing it. That year, he was given the title King of the Jews by the Roman Senate. And he was put in place to be a puppet ruler over Jerusalem. And so, Herod's job was to keep peace among the Jewish people. The Romans lorded over the Jews, and they selected Herod to be the ruler and keep the peace among them. Now, it's interesting that you should know that Herod was not actually a Jew. He traced his lineage through Esau, so he was an Idumean. He wasn't a full-blooded Jew. Now, in order to make up for that, he married a Jewish aristocrat to make himself more appealing to the people. But really, Herod only cared about one thing 
the record of history tells us, and that is keeping power at all costs. In fact, the historians tell us that he was incredibly paranoid. Uh, he was fearful of usurpers who were eyeing his throne. Then this made him a very ruthless, heartless man. In fact, when he became suspicious of folks eyeing his crown, he had them killed. And you know who all he killed? He killed his wife. He killed his three sons, his mother-in-law, his brother-in-law, 46 priests, and untold others that history probably doesn't report. So you can imagine that among the Jewish people, Herod was not looked upon nicely. They hated Herod. And because it was well known among the Gentiles that the Jews didn't eat pork, that was not kosher in their diet, the emperor of Rome... Caesar Augustus made a joke saying that uh, it was better to be Herod's sow than to be his son because there was a greater possibility that if you were a relative or a family member that he was going to kill you. One British historian gave this sobering assessment of Herod. Listen to what was written about the man. Quote, His whole career was red with the blood of murder. Deaths by strangulation, deaths by burning, deaths by being cleft asunder, deaths by secret assassination, confessions forced by unspeakable torture, acts of heinous violence, and insane lust. The survivors during his rule were more miserable than those killed. So, praise God today that you didn't grow up under the rule of this wicked man named Herod. Now, we first meet Herod here in Matthew chapter 2. And we notice that the Magi have arrived from the east with questions about the newborn king, the king of the Jews. And of course, when Herod hears that, that sends alarm bells off in his head that rocked him to the core because the title, king of the Jews, belonged to him, right? Or so he thought. Now, we notice here in our text that with some of the help from religious scholars, the wise men are directed to Micah's prophecy, Micah Chapter 5, verse 2, we read it there in verse 6. That the long-expected Messiah was to be born in the city of Bethlehem. They had followed the star across the desert and arrived almost there. They came to Jerusalem. Now they need to go a few miles down the road to Bethlehem. And Herod tells the Magi, Hey, look, when you find the baby boy in Bethlehem, come and report back to me. But you need to understand what his real purpose was. Herod didn't want to go worship Christ, he wanted to go kill him. He wanted to go end the life of this new threat to his throne. Now think for a moment, friend, of the ridiculous insecurity of this man. He is jealous and he is fearful of a baby. And yet, as we look at this text this morning, we find out that it applies directly to us. You see, there were two kings in that passage. The one who sat on the throne in Jerusalem and the real king, the king of kings who was born in Bethlehem. So the real question that we need to ask ourselves this morning as we read this text is, who's the real king in my life? Is it me or is it Jesus? Which king do you bow to? Which king do you serve? The reality is, friend, when you study yourself and you read what the Bible has to say about our heart, there's a little Herod inside each one of us. I know you didn't come to church to hear that today, but it's true. 
There's a little Herod inside each one of us because in our fallen, sinful state, you know what we want to hold on to? We want to hold on to our throne. We want to hold on to our autonomy. We don't want to bow the knee to anybody because the essence of sin is to desperately hold on to the throne of your life. And so many will not come to Christ because they won't give up control. They won't give over the throne of their life. They'll only come so far with Jesus. You know, there's Herods in our world today. There's lots of them. In fact, you go witnessing and you go share Jesus with some of them and you'll find out that same spirit is in their heart. I was reading Lee Strobel this week. He's a great Christian writer. Lee Strobel's written many books, The Case for Christ, Case for Faith, uh, Case for the Real Jesus, most recently, The Case for Miracles. He wrote in his book about an occasion where he got to go meet a Herod. He didn't go by the name Herod, but you recognize him as Hugh Hefner. He died a few years ago. But as a reporter for the Chicago Tribune, Lee Strobel got to go interview this man in his plush Los Angeles mansion. Here's what he wrote about it. Think of this. He said, It was strange sitting in Hefner's opulent mansion. There he was clad in his trademark pajamas and silk smoking jacket. I was discussing matters of faith with the grandfather of the American porn industry. And when I asked him about God, here is what he said. He said, quote, The God of Christianity is too childish for me. I don't believe in a God who would tell us what to do. Herod, right? And then he said, Jesus is no more the Son of God than we are. I wonder if he's changed his opinion now that he's closed his eyes in death. And unless he repented, friend, he probably split hell wide open. I invited several people to church this week. Hey, we should come. We're having great worship. Afterward, I got your lunch covered. We're having Christmas dinner. You ought to come. You know what some of the answers I got back was? Well, I, I don't know, preacher. I, I, I'm kind of busy this time of year. I got a whole lot going on. Well, thanks, Derek, for the invitation. I, I'll check my schedule and see if it fits in with what I've got happening. You see what it is? It's Herod. I don't want to bow my knee to Jesus. I don't want to give up control of my life. I don't want to be inconvenienced by this one who calls himself king of the Jews. Friend, listen to me. I have stood at the bedside of men who are gasping for breath, about to head off into eternity, and I've presented Jesus to them and said, you had better receive him now. And they say, it's not for me. I don't need a Savior. You know what? Because they don't want to bow the knee to another king. So our world is filled with little Herods. They don't want anything to interfere with their career, or their pleasure, or their power, or their plans, or their lifestyle. And they're not about to let somebody else be king of their lives. And so not only do they miss Christ, but they miss out on eternal life. Because, friend, the human heart is not big enough for two thrones. Only one can sit on the throne of the heart. It's either going to be you or it's going to be Jesus. So the question we need to ask ourselves today as we look at this passage, hey, have I really given up control of my life to the Lord? 
Or am I kind of running things by my own plans, making it up as I go along? And if Jesus fits into my life, well, maybe I'll make a compromise here or there. So we see, number one, a malevolent despot. Then number two, I want you to notice with me today, a murderous decree. A murderous decree. Verse 16, let's move along a little bit in the passage. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men. See, the wise men were told in a dream, after they had worshipped Jesus, don't go back and tell Herod, but you move on. They'd been tricked by the wise men. He became furious and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under according to the time that he'd ascertained from the wise men. And then this was fulfilled what was spoken of by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Wow. Do you ever read the Bible and you read a passage and it is so shocking that you think to yourself, how could this be in the Word of God? Here it is, right here in the middle of a Christmas story, infanticide. Are you kidding me, God? I read this anew for the first time the other day and I was thinking, how have we missed this in the Christmas story? How have I missed it all these years? And it's shocking to me as you read that, that Matthew includes this in the Christmas story. You know what we want to do all the time with our Christmas sermons and our Christmas pageants and so on? We want to sanitize the birthday of Jesus. We want to make it clean. We want to make it neat and polished. And it just wasn't like that. It was bloody. It was gross. It was dirty. God came down to an evil world, friend. Imagine this scene as Herod sends these soldiers in to raid the quiet little town of Bethlehem in the middle of the night Death squads are busting down doors and they rip these baby boys out of the arms of their moms. This is gruesome. Church historians remember this as the, quote, slaughter of the innocents. And it has become Herod's lasting legacy. And he will forever be remembered as the butcher of Bethlehem. You read that in the Bible and you think, well, gosh, Derek... That was so long ago. That was in the ancient world. We're sophisticated now. We've got Wi-Fi and smartphones. And we have got it figured out. Until you realize that, friend, we've been doing the very same thing in this country for decades now. Our own little infanticide that we've been carrying out since 1973. Did you know that in 2017... There were 862,320 reported abortions in the United States. Since Roe versus Wade, the nation has murdered. We collectively, as a people, have in the lives of 61 million babies. That's about 1,100 lives a day. I have a hard time saying God bless America when I know 1,100 lives being ended every day. Why? So we can be king. So we can have our sexual autonomy. So we can have it our way. They die at the altar of our own freedom. 61 million. That's a hard number to get your mind around, isn't it? Well, listen to this. That's the population 
today of Oregon, Nevada, Idaho, Colorado, Montana, Wyoming, Utah, New Mexico, Nebraska, North and South Dakota, Kansas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Mississippi, Louisiana. God, stop it! Minnesota, Missouri, Iowa. Those states. The whole populations of those states wiped out. You see, life is cheap when you've decided that you're going to be king. We're willing to sacrifice anyone or anything that gets in the way of running our own little kingdom. You ever play King of the Mountain as a kid? You ever play that game? A lot of church fights got started over playing King of the Mountain at, uh, in the backyard church where I grew up. A lot of backyard football. A lot of bloody noses. But anyway, you play King of the Mountain, you know what you do? got to do to win? You got to step on somebody to get there. You got to be biggest, baddest, toughest. And somebody's got to suffer. As I was thinking about this this week, I was asking the Lord, Lord, why did you put this in the Bible? This is so gruesome. This is so ugly. This is so evil. Lord, why is this in the Christmas story of all things? If we were writing this, put yourself in Matthew's situation. If you were pinning the Scriptures, the temptation among us, the urge among us, well, let's leave this part out. It's kind of R-rated. This isn't PG. This is death. But you know how significant this is when I read this? Because, listen to me, this is the kind of violent, dark, evil, sinful world that our Savior was born in. It wasn't a fairy tale. It wasn't some story that we tell our kids like Santa Claus. This is real. He came into a broken, dark, ugly world. And that's the very reason that Christmas had to happen. We needed a Savior to save us from ourselves. We don't have enough sense to stop killing babies. Stop injecting ourselves with drugs. Stop living against the Word of God. We don't have enough sense to obey God. So there had to be a Savior. A Savior who wasn't born in some comfy castle far away, sequestered from humanity with a silver spoon in His mouth. But a Savior that when He came, He came all the way down. Down to the very hay and the muck and the mire of this world. He wasn't born in some castle somewhere. He was born in a ghetto. A ghetto where they were killing babies every day. Kind of like a gut punch, isn't it? Maybe you're looking at the Christmas story a little bit different today. Philip Yancey, he, great Christian writer, listen to what he said. He said, we do well to remember the setting for the first Christmas was marked by violence, terrorism, and world empires. Cries could be heard in the sleepy town of Bethlehem as a tyrannical and paranoid king ordered infanticide. The neighborhood Jesus freely moved into was no stranger to the carnage we see daily in our towns where mass shootings are frequent. This may not answer all of our questions, he said, in the face of tragedy, but it does much to tell us about who God is. His love for humanity did not keep Him from entering a world of death and darkness, our ugly, broken world. 
As John 3.16 so simply reminds us, For God so loved the world, as broken and messed up as it is. You see, here's the application for you and me. (laughs) Christmas reminds us today that Jesus is not afraid to step into your darkness, into your mess, into your sin, into your brokenness. It didn't keep Him away the first time. And it won't keep Him away from getting involved in the mess of your life every day. You see what love does? Love pursues. And love goes after. And love doesn't count the cost. Yes, Father, I know it's a broken planet. I know it's ugly down there. I know they're killing each other. But if I don't go, there can be no cross. And if there's no cross, there's no salvation. You see it? A murderous decree was given. Has this truth entered your mind today? That the Almighty God made Himself an infant. He made Himself vulnerable. He made Himself breakable. He chose to be born in a place where there was no running water, there was no modern convenience, and where a king just by his whim could end the life of a child. And that's the God that we have. And friend, if that doesn't change you, if that doesn't wake you up, then you don't understand Christmas. So we see number one, a malevolent despot. Number two, a murderous decree. And then I'm almost done. Number three, notice a miraculous dream. A miraculous dream. Back up to verse 13. I know that I'm reading this out of order, but just bear with me. This is picking it back up with Mary and Joseph. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel from the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise! Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken of by the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Do you just read? Do you just see what happened? Before Herod could get his bloodthirsty hands on the Christ child, the providential hand of God intervened in the form of a dream, telling Joseph, flee from this place, go to Egypt. There's danger coming. By the way, if you are counting, this is the fifth dream that I read of in Matthew 1 and 2. There's one in chapter 1 and verse 20. Chapter 2, verse 12, 13, 19, and 22. God speaking in dreams. In the Bible, God often used dreams to reveal special information. In this case, it was protection. So think about this. (laughs) Here you have big bad Herod sitting on the throne in Jerusalem calling the shots. And with little to no effort at all, God goes around him and thwarts the plan of this powerful leader and says, Oh, no, you don't. I've got a plan. I've got a purpose. And I've got a way that you don't know about. What a great reminder today of the sovereignty of God. Yes, man thinks he rules, but God 
overrules. Man proposes, but God disposes. God is behind the scenes, but He's moving all the scenes that He is behind today, friend. He's always ten steps ahead of the enemy, and God doesn't play checkers, He plays chess, and no matter how the devil moves, it's always going to be checkmate. Somebody say amen in the house of God today. You look like you're falling asleep. By the way, don't miss this. Matthew's editorial comment about the Holy Family's flight to Egypt. Did you see it? This was to fulfill, verse 15, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I've called my son. You talk about sending me down a rabbit hole this week. Where's that prophecy from? It's from the book of Hosea. Now notice this. Who else do you know was a deliverer of God's people that was called out of Egypt? His name starts with a Mo. Moses. Now notice this. Matthew's trying to teach us something. By going down into Egypt and coming out, Jesus is fulfilling an Old Testament model. You see, 1,500 years before this time, the people of God were enslaved in Egypt. And there was a Pharaoh, a powerful man, who sat on the throne. And he, like Herod, had a Hitler-like final solution. He said, I'm going to end the Hebrew people. Let's take the Hebrew boys to and under and drown them in the Nile River. Do you remember that from your Sunday school class? But God had another plan, didn't He? You see, He raised baby Moses up to be the deliverer of His people. In fact, Moses was drawn from the Nile River through the sovereignty of God, and God worked it out to where Moses was raised and educated in the Pharaoh's house. In other words, God's hero, God's deliverer, God's Savior was grown up right under the nose of the world's most powerful ruler, and Pharaoh played right into God's plan. He foot the bill to train and raise up the people who would lead the slaves out of bondage. Do you follow me? What is Matthew showing us here? Matthew is showing us that Jesus and the Spirit of Moses is the ultimate deliverer, the ultimate salvation of His people. He's not come just to lead them out of slavery. He's come to lead them out of sin. Look at this chart. Notice how the Christmas story parallels the Exodus story. Moses was born during the reign of an evil Pharaoh. Jesus was born during the reign of an evil King Herod. Moses saved from Pharaoh's decree to kill the Jewish boys. He was saved by being hid in the basket. Jesus was saved by Herod's decree to kill the Jewish boy. He wasn't hid in the basket, but he was hid by the wise men. Moses, through God's providence, led him to be raised in Pharaoh's house. Jesus, by the dream that he gave Joseph, was led to Egypt, and he was raised in Pharaoh's house in Egypt. And in Moses... God delivered His people from slavery. And in Jesus, according to the prophecy in chapter 1, verse 21, you shall call His name Jesus, for He shall save them from their sins. Do you see it? Oh my goodness. It's much deeper than you ever thought. Listen to what David Jeremiah said. He gave a great contrast between these kings, Herod and Jesus. He said this, Matthew's Christmas story presents a powerful contrast between two kings who both claimed the title King of the Jews. 
One occupied an opulent throne in Jerusalem. The other occupied the crude throne of an animal trough. Herod's legacy was misery and death. Jesus' legacy was joy and life. Herod in pride tried to hold on to power at all costs, but Jesus in humility set aside all his divine privileges and became a servant. Herod's hands were bathed in the blood of his victims, but Jesus' blood would be freely shed to buy all his people's pardons. And while the throne of Herod would soon be turned to dust, Jesus would rule forever. Amen. Glory to God. What happened to old Herod? Things didn't end well for Herod. Don't go read the history books. I did it for you this week. It's long. It's boring. But here's what happened to Herod. According to the first century Jewish historian Josephus, Herod, quote, died of ulcerated entrails, putrefied maggot-filled organs, constant convulsions, foul breath, and neither physicians nor therapeutic baths could relieve his suffering. Friend, when you choose to be your own king, you reap what you sow. Just as it was 2,000 years ago, so it is today. <laughs> today we have evil dictators. Today things seem to be tipped in the favor of the rich and powerful. Today good people still suffer as they did in that first Christmas. And we may be tempted to look out on all the brokenness and craziness of our world and think for a moment, the darkness is overcoming the light. There's no answer. There's no hope. But the Christmas story reminds us that God is on the throne. He's working through all the mess. He's working through all the evil and darkness in our world. He doesn't need our help to accomplish His plan. He is sovereign. His Spirit still whispers to people just as it did Joseph. Miracles still happen in the most unlikely of places. The people that you think are farthest away from God still have hope and a chance to be reached. And just as He came the first time, Jesus Christ is coming again, friend. And He won't be a baby in a manger. He'll be a king of kings riding a white stallion parting the eastern sky. My goodness, what a God we serve. I don't want to be anything else but saved. We try and put God in a box. And you read that story and you think, well, that was 2,000 years ago. God don't do that stuff today, preacher. How do you know? I read this story this week about a man who lived like Herod. He was an enemy of the cross. There's a man named Nabil Quirishi. He wasn't born in America. He was born in the Middle East. He was raised to be a Muslim. Raised to hate Jews. Raised to hate Christians. Raised to believe that Jesus is just a good prophet, not the Son of God. But you know what? God loves those people too. And He wants to reach them. And sometimes He goes out of bounds. He doesn't use a missionary or the Southern Baptist Convention or a preacher. Listen to this story. If this doesn't sound like God. Cracks began to form in the foundation of Nabil's faith. After he met a friend named David. 
David was a Christian. And he started sharing Jesus with him. And through a series of conversations, David helped Nabil understand the real Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus of the Quran. Nabil was at a serious crossroads at 19 years old, wanting to be a medical student. It came to a head one night as Nabil asked God, the God of the Bible, not Allah. They're not the same God, by the way. You know that, don't you? Ask God for a sign. Help me, God, to know if Jesus is real. That night as Nabil drifted off to sleep, he had a powerful dream. Standing there he was at a window looking into a house. It was a warmly lit house in his dream and everybody was sitting around a banquet table. The room was filled with laughter and sumptuous food. Everyone at the table seemed to be waiting for the master of ceremonies to enter. And as Nabil listened to the laughter and the chattering, he became aware that the person they were waiting for to arrive was Jesus. He saw his friend David there sitting at the banquet table among the the guests. He called out to his friend in his dream, David, David, come let me in. But there was no response. Suddenly, in the dream, a glorious figure dressed in white appeared in the room. And all fell to their knees. Nabil knew in his dream that it was Jesus. And then he woke up. That was the end of Nabil's faith in Islam. The next day, he went to his friend David and he said, Help me make sense of the dream that I had. And he explained it to him. David pulled out his Bible, turned to Luke chapter 13 and verse 24 and read this to him. You tell me, my God is silent. Listen to this. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try and enter and not be able to it. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, saying, Sir, let me in. Nobody's safe from this almighty God who can reach you even in your sleep. Immediately, Nabil understood that God had spoken directly to him. He said, it was clear to me that I would not be at the banquet of God, heaven, unless I recognize Jesus as king. And God saved this young man. The rest of his story is awesome. He went on to be a preacher. He got involved with Robbie Zacharias International Ministry. He went around the world preaching the gospel. He got cancer. He died at the age of 34 in 2017, but not before God wrecked his life. Praise God for that. You see, friend, Christmas reminds us this world isn't closed off. He still whispers. He still speaks in signs and wonders and dreams. He still breaks into our ordinary. He is here and He is not silent, friends. He's our God.